What would the world look like if decisions were made by the people for the people? Dow or Never is here to break down how DAOs are disrupting traditional power structures and transforming the way we interact. If you're ready, let's get into today's episode. Welcome to Dow or Never. This is the show to help you learn about the rapidly changing world of DAOs. I'm Isaac Patka, and I'm here with Logos co-founder Jeffrey Arone. Jeffrey is an established internet and blockchain investor, advisor, and executive. I'm a contributor and builder in many DAOs in the Ethereum ecosystem. Together, we founded the Logos DAO. Every other week on DAO or Never, we break down the biggest stories surrounding DAOs. And this week, we're talking about privacy and roasts and merges and creative commons and licenses. So uh, lots, lots to cover today. So uh, Jeffrey, what, what do you want to start with? Thanks, Isaac. So the first thing I want to talk about is the merge. Uh, for those that aren't familiar with the merges, an upcoming upgrade to the Ethereum platform that's going to merge Ethereum mainnet with the beacon chain. This is a transition to go from the proof of work to the proof of stake. People are excited about it, definitely a little bit confused about what it's going to mean, but it's uh, you know one of the key things as well is that it's going to change the energy consumption. It'll be reduced by 99.95% according to Ethereum Foundation. And this is scheduled to happen right now around September 15th, according to the hash rate. Isaac, what does this mean for DAOs and just the world at large? Yeah, there's a lot of confusion about what the merge actually means. Um, A lot of people are seeing things like, oh, does this mean that there's going to be like multiple blockchains where I get like my same, I'll have like the same NFT and the same tokens on multiple chains. Kind of get into that in a minute, but like, at its most basic, all that's really happening is that if you're just a consumer of Ethereum services and someone that interacts with the blockchain, pretty much nothing will change. It's not like the network's going to get faster or anything. It's not like fees are going to change. It's kind of a background change. Uh, it should be a background change in the in the eyes of most people. The consensus mechanism is changing. Most people don't interact with like the consensus mechanism of Ethereum on a daily basis. Like this is the thing that that miners interact with to mine new blocks, to order transactions in blocks, and to um, and to get rewarded in in new emissions of of ether um, when they do. So it's changing from a system where that's based on solving like energy intensive and challenging math problems to a system with uh, randomly chosen validators who are incentivized to behave honestly um, by having to put up some capital or stake rather than making the network secured through this like overwhelming use of uh, energy and solving math problems. So uh, it doesn't change anything for users of the network. It's just going to make it a whole lot more efficient. And it's also ideally going to make it so that a lot more people can participate in the security of the network. But that, that's not necessarily going to be the case. But um, it's, it's going to be, you won't have to run a mining rig. You can like, it, it's running something, running a validator for Ethereum post-merge can just be like a little box that sits on your desk. Like these, these things are going to become more, more accessible and more people are going to be able to in, be involved in it. But as a user, it's not really something that anyone has to worry about besides like the, I don't know, a few hours around the merge, there might be some uncertainty around the network has to fully update and everybody has to, all the nodes have to fully update. So I would just, uh, I'm, I'm planning on just kind of sitting back and not doing any critical transactions during those couple of hours. But yeah, it really shouldn't change anything for most people. Cool. Yeah. It, one of the things that we were talking about before was um, this presumption that a lot of people have that fees were going to go down. I think that was clearly just wishful thinking as you 
pointed out this has nothing to do with fee structure in the least. Yeah, I think people see like, oh, network upgrade, it's probably going to get cheaper and faster. And it's like, oh, really? Well, it's going to get a whole lot less impactful on the environment. But that those upgrades are, are yet to come. Yeah, I guess one way to look at it is as you're getting charged really high transaction fees, you can rest assured that you will be doing less harm to the environment. <laughs> I guess that's a good way to think about it. Tornado Cash, thinking about... Uh, we have our little DAP nodes that we run. And I remember not too long ago asking you about, you know, what's, do people actually run these tornado cash nodes on these devices? And, you know, you were definitely uh, staring me a little clear of that. But uh, yeah, there's been a lot going on to say the least. And I, I feel like that is something that you are far more equipped to explain than, than me. So tornado cash is a, is a transaction privacy service that runs on top of Ethereum. It basically makes it so that if you send money into it, you can then later withdraw money and it breaks the link between the wallets that are that are transacting. So at its core, it's just a it's it's a way to make your blockchain history more private because by default on Ethereum and Bitcoin, everything is completely traceable. And so uh, if you want to see all of like the entire history of all the Ether that lives in your wallet, you could trace that back, but where you would hit a dead end if you if you saw something that said tornado. So if you saw an address that said tornado, you'd know that like, okay, this came from a pool, and I can know that maybe a few hundred or a few thousand um, people put money into this pool, but I don't know who that put money in, I don't know which person that put money in is the one that's actually withdrawing on the other end. So it's a pretty simple privacy service that relies on a decentralized network of relayers. And of course, a private transaction service could also be used for criminal things like uh, laundering money or interacting with uh, sanctioned states. So, in, but in addition to many other like just completely valid use cases where people just want uh, transaction privacy, but with the the heavy-handed uh, regulation of the government has decided that anybody interacting with this service uh, should be considered sanctioned and basically need to treat you as if you're doing uh, business with terrorists, which is I think pretty dumb. Uh, if that's the case, we should outlaw cash too. Good point. So, thank thanks for that, Isaac. How how do you see it playing out? Do you think? it'll change well it's 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 already playing out in a kind of an interesting way where um, people are trying to just call attention to the absurdity of banning anybody that's interacted with these services like i said you don't know who put money in when money is withdrawn from these networks so something that somebody's done is just like found all these like uh well-known wallets that are known to be associated with like celebrities or government accounts or or high-profile individuals and they've just started withdrawing money from the tornado pool like a, like a, a few hundred dollars like 150 dollars into each one of these people's wallets and and that's really just kind of forcing the hand of these services which says like if you interact with these services you're going to be banned and treated as a sanctioned individual okay cool well jimmy fallon's wallet has now received 150 dollars from this service is he now banned from all uh from interacting with all services or interacting with exchanges. Um, it's just kind of an absurd scenario. And so hopefully what happens is like, there's a bit more discretion into how sanctioned transactions are, are dealt with on the blockchain. Because in, in the worst case, they're, I mean, they're starting to make things, uh, if you were to comply, unusable. But I think that nobody in the space wants to, co- wants to comply. And so uh, it's just going to lead to uh, more conflicts. Yeah, and there's uh, obviously like Tornado is a service that facilitates this process, but certainly there's many other ways that people can do something that's tantamount to the to the same thing. Like a lot of this stuff can be done semi-manually or 
and you can start to just flow transactions from one exchange to another, in which case they're going to have to like try and figure out how to subpoena every exchange and all their addresses. So it gets messy in a pretty exponential way pretty quickly. So It gets messy and it also calls back to the the fights around just encryption too. After encryption was invented and used in uh, like private military situations, the government, I think, actually classified encryption as as a weapon, as something that you can't export, that you can't move, and like, which is again to people that are are just in computer science absurd. Like, this is a general purpose privacy thing, and the government was trying to push the idea that like any private communication needs to have a government backdoor. So you could imagine them saying now, okay, you can have your transaction privacy service, but we would like a government issued backdoor that allows us to to like unravel all the privacy. Like, I'm sure that there that's going to be a proposed a, a proposed solution by some sort of policymaker. Because they proposed the exact same solution with encryption, but that didn't work. But the only reason that we have encryption, why we have HTTPS and that little lock sign on on browsers, is because people fought against those like idiotic policies. It's like they they want the master key to my daughter's uh, diary as well. It's, it's just silly. So that's that's the deal with tornado. A lot of people are pretty uh, un- unhappy with how with uh, how things are playing out, but I think responding um, accordingly. And there are proposals in a lot of DAOs to just to help help support the the legal defense of just the developers of the open source software. But on another note, I thought that we could kind of talk about a, a new system for DAOs that, that's emerging after, after the DAO Palace. It's something that we put together to help DAOs audit their configuration, to help people, to help other external parties to audit DAOs, and really just to analyze if what DAOs are actually doing throughout the crypto space aligns with their mission and what they, what they say they're doing. So it's this, it's this format called a, a roast, which we published the first one last week and um, been getting some pretty uh, good reception and, uh, and and interest from other people and participating in them. Do you know uh, when's the next one scheduled? Uh, I think that we might do one at D-Web Camp um, in California live. DAO roasts are, it's really just like a, a playful, clever name, like no one's really being roasted or made fun of. Um, it's just the idea of like, can we through open source means and by analyzing and tracing transactions, can we understand if DAOs are actually doing what they say that they're doing? So we conducted the first one at the DAO Palace on Nouns, which is a pretty stellar example of like high quality code and doing what they say they what they do. But we can link in the notes to some of the findings that we had. Um, but we're also looking to do it for, I don't know, any other DAOs. We could do it for the Moloch DAO. We could do it for uh, maybe some of the larger protocol DAOs, or we could even do it for like smaller like grants clubs and see if they're actually operating the way that they are they're publicly uh, proclaiming. So speaking of public, do folks, what is the process by which someone ends up being roasted? Do they have like full, how much notice do they have? How public is it? And are the results publicly available? Yeah, I, I want to be cautious of not making it seem like an antagonistic, uh, an, an antagonistic process. Um, this should be meant to be helpful. And if too many people think that we're just being like jerks by doing this, then perhaps we need a new name. But we basically we just pick DAOs that maybe have a large treasury or a lot of activity. And maybe there's some ambiguity about how control actually happens and control meaning like how are things how are actions proposed? How do people vote? How does stuff get executed? Where is the money held? Like these are all the questions that we're trying to answer about DAOs. And typically, no, it's, it doesn't require any prior consent because it's like you know all based on open source information. Yeah, again, we're it's pretty early in the process, but I 
don't intend it to be an antagonistic uh, an antagonistic scenario unless maybe we discover a DAO that is like completely garbage, not doing at all what they say they're doing. They say that they're a decentralized group of a thousand token holders, but really it's like two people two people sitting together faking the whole thing. That might become a bit more antagonistic. Yeah, every time I hear a roast, I think of like a drunk Dean Martin and Don Rickles just like picking on someone. And yes, I know those are references to very old and long deceased comedians. Um, so maybe you can call them Tao interventions, but that also can be a little confrontational. Yeah, and configuration audits just sounds too boring. So roast has gotten, uh, there's some good memes around roast. So I think I'll stick to that for now. I like roast. Or, I mean, if people get confused by the name, you can just crank up the antagonism too. <laughs> sure. There is another new DAO that I just learned about uh, this past week. Um, I think it's from the same family of DAOs as like Flamingo and Neptune and all like kind of the open law slash tribute labs family of DAOs. Um, It's called Coco, but it's C0C0. And their goal is to pool ETH to collect uh, NFTs that are specifically released under the Creative Commons zero license which is very permissible it allows anyone in the world to use the art even if you don't own the nft it's just like a very permissive standard which is intended to allow uh the ip to be remixed and and used by by many people and a lot of people are very pro this standard but there's also a lot of people that are like wait if my nft is cc0 why do i what's what's the point of owning it um so there there's there's a bit of a uh, both uh, education to do and and also some like clarification on on what NFTs and licensing rights actually exist and how they work. Well, I think that's pretty much it for this week. A couple of things I wanted to mention if folks folks listening, uh please uh be sure to subscribe if you like what we're doing. It's uh definitely helps us and certainly leaving a review would be helpful as well. And um just a little heads up that the Logos DAO um, will be launching very soon, specifically one where we're going to bring our own members on board to start playing with the next generation of the product and actually have a chance to be part of their own very first DAO. So we'll keep you guys apprised of that. And with that, that's it for me, Isaac. Yeah, that's good. Um, we'll be at a few events coming up soon. We'll be at DWeb Camp in California. We'll be at uh, MCon in Denver. Um, in DevCon and in Bogota. So we'll have a lot of opportunities to interact with other folks in the in the DAO universe. Um, and yeah, looking forward to it. Hope you enjoyed today's episode of DAO or Never. Make sure to subscribe at logos.xyz slash podcast and follow us on Twitter at 0xlogos so you never miss out on any of the latest happenings in the DAO world. It's DAO or Never. Never.